Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the May 2017 podcast. And I wanted to thank you for submitting all these amazing questions and uh, just want to always say, uh, please continue to send them in. We have a vast array and I want to be able to try and correlate the questions to a lot of the specific topics that we are, you know, addressing on the inner circle. And it's great to, to follow the podcast in the same suit. I am speaking uh, to you from Chiang Mai, Thailand right now. I'm on my shitty Samsung mic. Uh, so I hope you uh, can uh, deal with the uh, not so great image or sorry, not so great audio quality. <clears throat> but I'm looking forward to addressing a lot of great questions. And here we go. Hi, Shane. Thank you for your dedication to teaching us the tricks of the trade. After every post, the thought of running a large set becomes slightly less overwhelming. Terrifying, but I'll get there. I'm new to the circle, so forgive me if this has already been answered, but I was wondering if you could address using the power lights. I see on your diagrams you have 18K lights, 6K lights, 10K, 20K, etc. Are these all in the truck and then you pull out the ones that work best for the day? Or how do you know how powerful the lights need to be ahead of time? to balance for interior practicals or for exterior fill key. Besides experience, how can a DP decide this ahead of time to get the right lighting kit for the job? This is a great question. <clears throat> yes, uh, experience plays a huge part in this, but there is wonderful ways to kind of educate yourself on this specific, you know, understanding the power of each light. So let me break it down for you. When I do a feature film, a commercial, whatever it is, there is a package. We call it the main lighting package. And this is a package that stays on the truck that is there to be able to handle almost every situation on a movie. You know, it's a it's a weekly package that you have a good amount of 18, you know, of HMIs, a good amount of tungsten, some uh, theatrical lights, some LED lights, some uh, light gear, Kino flows, a, a nice package to be able to handle whatever the hell's thrown at you. Because a lot of times <clears throat> we'll get in a situation where, you know, we scouted a location and then all of a sudden we lose it. And so... Having lights that are specific to locations, that's something that we do do, which is called drop loads uh, that are in addition to the main lighting package. 
So you would have your main lighting package that can handle the day exterior work and handle a lot of day interior and night exterior work. And then there's locations that require drop loads for a big night lighting scenario. There would be drop loads on top of the main package or big interiors where you're doing a ton of lighting. There would be drop loads of power distribution for the pre-ringing crew and lights to have that they don't steal uh, off of the main lighting package. The main lighting package wants to be this incredible, what I would say, uh, a package that is not touched or stolen from because it's always your get out of jail free card. Day exteriors, everything's going wonderfully. The clouds roll in. You got to be rolling out three, four, 18 Ks to uh, keep everything matching. If you had given two or three 18 Ks to the pre-ringing crew because the next day they needed 18 Ks outside of windows, then you are shit out of luck. So what we want to do is you want to keep this package as one complete unit that has a, a good wide array of lighting devices that can, that can handle almost any scenario. So that is kind of the truck and how it works and how I have those lights at the ready. Now getting to the ability to understand what you get out of a light. Well, there's this wonderful thing called photometrics. And everyone asks me, Shane, why do you have a light meter? You know, everything is done off the monitor. Why do you need a light meter? Well, a light meter educates you on exactly what these lights can do. And every light has a photometric chart. And it will tell you how many foot candles it will give you at full spot or full flood at varying distances. Well, if you have a light meter that translates foot candles, you can say, okay, if I need to get a two uh, and my light is going to be 35 feet away coming through a window and I need a two on the meter, then I can set my meter to a two, slide it over to foot candles. And then when I read that light, you know, that I need to, to, to make a two, I find my foot candles to get to my, to my level. And then I go to the photometric chart and find out if that specific light is going to give me the foot candles, which then translates to giving me a T2. So it's a little part of the process. I know it by experience, but this is the best way that you can train yourself. And this is what I learned as a gaffer. I came up the technical side. So if you're coming up the camera side and you're going to be a DP, these are things that you learn in the trenches as being a gaffer. So, and you can rely on that gaffer to to give you uh, and help you with picking the units. But what I've always done is my gaffer and my key grip, they never show up till about two weeks before we start production. And everyone wants numbers and everyone wants answers. So I have to be able to provide those way in advance and having the knowledge of what each light does and how much output is required and what I'm going to know uh, will do the job is very important. So I would say the best way to start training yourself and understanding lights, because a lot of times you're going to bounce them. They're not going to be always direct. So I would just take a light that you use a lot and I would just start to get the photometrics on that. Uh, and then see what it is when it's bounced and use the foot candle on your light meter to translate. And, you know, I'm trying to remember in my mind how it's done again, because every time I do it, it's, it's, uh, I haven't done it in a while since it's based on experience. But as I remember, the, the last time I really had to do this was on Terminator Salvation. I had two 24 light Dinos, so that's 24K each. So 48K of lights in a 125 foot condor. And it was 350 feet 
away from the minefield. And I needed to know photometric wise if I was able to get a one four and a half as a backlight because I like to underexpose my backlights and uh, I shot it at, at a two. So I basically would on my spectrometer, you, there's a foot candle function and there's a f-stop function. And what you do is if you need to, so you set your ISO. So let's say you're setting your ISO at 800 and you, you get the, you read the photometrics. So 350 feet away, it's going to give you 120 foot candles. Okay. So what you do is you switch over to 100, uh, switch over to foot candles and you just take any light, any light that you have. I just, I tend to use like practical lights, my desk lamp, and I just move it to, I get 120 foot candles. And then I flick the meter over to f-stop and it will tell you at 800 ISO at 180 degree shutter that this will be the stop at, you know, 120 foot candles. So then you do the math. Okay, 120 foot candles, it's going to be a one, four and a half. Perfect. 350 feet away. I figured it out. But I first did 124 light Dino and I got like a point, I got a one, right? A one and a half. And the way photometric works, it's, it's very interesting. It's very deceiving. Some people get sucked into this photometric uh, world. If you want to double the light, then you need to double the light. So uh, if you have a 24 light Dino and you are getting a one and a half at 350 feet away, I will need to add another 24 light Dino to gain one full stop. So that way I added another 24 light Dino and I was able to get a one four and a half as my backlight. So and, and with this, it works exactly across the board. It does not matter what light it is. It is the same. If you want another stop, you have to add an equal light. That is photometrics. If you want a, another half a stop, you add a half of that light. So let's say you had a 10K and you wanted another half a stop, then you would add a 5K. If you wanted a full stop, you'd have to add a whole other 10K. So this is pretty much the, the best way for you to learn what lights do. And Mole Richardson has a vast array of all the photometrics that you can get online, or they have an amazing catalog that has them. And you just start to teach yourself. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that I wanted to uh, break down within the inner circle. So know that that's probably going to be coming in 2018 is this whole idea of how to do this. But I'm giving you uh, a good uh, intro to it all on the podcast. All right. Next question. Hi, Shane. I've been a member for around a year now, and I have to thank you for helping me out. Put the passion back into my work. Yours is infectious. I've helped, developed a love of you using bounce light for key lights as your examples. The only troubles I sometimes have is using bounce lights with mixed lighting conditions, i.e. daylight. Do you ever gel light before you bounce it or simply use it an alternative solution. I find gels take far too much output away from my lights to be effective. Thanks again, James London. James, you're very, you're very welcome. I think the inner circle has, is helping tons of people and, uh, it really, um, is a great, I uh, thank you very much for, for the kind word. It makes it all worthwhile. All right. On your question, when you're working in daylight scenarios, it's very difficult to use tungsten lights because tungsten lights, if you're trying to match daylight, uh, are going to require mostly probably a full CTB, which is blue, 
and a quarter CTB because a lot of the Fresnels or open face lights aren't really 3200 Kelvin. The reflector's probably a little old. The bulb might be a little old. There might be dust on the Fresnel. Uh, all these things con uh, constitute sometimes it being around 3100 or 3050 Kelvin. So with that, you're going to need probably full CTB and 8 CTB to get it to 5600 Kelvin. That is going to take two and a half stops easy off of your light and make it pretty dismal. Now, the other thing is tungsten wavelength is different than daylight's wavelength. And the you can really sense a tungsten light compared to an HMI. So what I would suggest is when you're doing daylight, you want to try and, and rent some, some HMIs. Um, they're very small, compact, pack a ton of wallop. And for bounce lighting, like if I was going to bounce light an interview, I would probably get like an M18 or a, or a 1200 par. And the 1200 par would, you know, bounce into uh, your big white source and then you use some flags to control it off the background. And there you have it, Bob's your uncle. You're not trying to deal with putting several tungsten balance lights into some type of bounce. And also you're going to increase the heat factor uh, because tungsten lights burn a lot hotter than H HMIs. And uh, or you have something like a sky panel, which uh, kicks out a ton of light or like a Cineo HS2 or HSX. They put out the exact same amount of light as a sky panel. They're very cheap to rent and you can be any color temp from, you know, 2800 degrees all the way up to 6000, 6500 and with the sky panel all the way up to 10,000. So these are lights that you want to kind of use and, and rent in these situations so you can uh, set yourself up for success and not deal with the gels. Because when you put that thick of gel on a tungsten light, 90% of the time it's going to burn through it. And it's going to, it's if it doesn't burn a hole through it, it's definitely going to, you know, cut through the blue and all of a sudden during your shoot, and I've had this happen on Lico's, I've had this happen all the time during shoots, when you do put blue on tungsten lights, it obviously has the heat factor and that heat factor actually desaturates the blue. It, it uh, bakes the blue out of the gel and uh, all of a sudden you're having a massive color temperature shift. You, you'll find your 5,500 Kelvin tungsten light that has been blued all of a sudden goes to 5,000, all of a sudden goes to 4,800, all of a sudden goes to 4,200. And you're like, what is going on? Well, the gel is being bleached by the intensity of the tungsten light. So these are things that you want to always pay attention to. Uh, if I'm, let's say we light an interview and we go to lunch, when we come back, I'm always checking the Calvin again to make sure that the gel hasn't bleached if I'm doing this and it's a good etiquette. And then, you know, sometimes I just go, if I've had 18 Ks blazing through windows and most of them are like half spot and I've gelled them with full CTS, you know, to warm it up for like a late afternoon feel or early morning, I'm changing those gels out at lunch because I know I've bleached them and burned them. Whether you can see it to your eye, it, it kind of happens. So we're always, you know, replacing those. All right. Next question. Hi, Shane. I'm a documentary filmmaker and I do a lot of work overseas. Could you talk a little bit about a documentary filmmaking, good lighting kits for small crews and good mobility approach to covering B-roll and interviews, etc.? All right. Well, let's talk about uh, good lighting kits. I have to say one of my favorite tungsten lighting kits is the Westcott Spider Light Kit. It's a rolling hard case that ships like a golf bag. 
So you can ship it right on the plane. It goes in the oversized luggage section. Uh, it usually comes with four stands. It comes with four spider lights. You have a 24 by 36 soft box with an egg crate. You have a 36 by 48 soft box with an egg crate. You have a 12 by 36 soft box with an egg crate. You have a 12 by 50 soft box with an egg crate. Uh, and you can put your bulbs in there and, and uh, you're all ready to go. So that is a tungsten base. So if you're doing interviews that have a tungsten, you have um, ultimate control, You the light's not going to fly all over the place. It's not going to require you to have tons of C-stands. These are very contained lights that no spill comes out from them at all. It's unbelievably how tight these lights are. And they can be either daylight or tungsten. You can use the CFLs that Westcott provides, which have like a 93 uh, CRI, which is not bad at all. And you can put tungsten bulbs in them as well. So that is a very versatile unit that travels golf bag status and has a whole plethora of stuff that you can use. Like I use the 12 by 50 for a beautiful soft backlight. And the thing is, these things are so lightweight. They're under four pounds, fully loaded. So it's just a very nice unit. I would say another great lighting kit is the Cineos, the, the Cineo Maverick, uh, the Cineo Matchsticks. These lights are very compact, very small, very lightweight, and can do uh, a, a lot of, uh, they have a lot of power and punch. Um, they have an amazing CRI value and their skin, the way they light skin, the light, the LED light really has a soul. It's a beautiful light source. So I would say that those are a great uh, light to, to keep because you can go 2800 all the way up to 5600 Kelvin. Uh, it has a lot of output to balance if you have windows that you're looking out of. You know, you put your interviewer and uh, interviewee, I guess, and uh, you might have a window in the background. This is a light that has the punch to be able to balance the interior with the exterior. Um, so I, I think that's a great kit light. I'm not a big fan of like the uh, LED light panels. Uh, these lights tend to, they're very harsh and they're very hard to, to uh, their CRI value is not the greatest and they're very hard to contain and the quality of light really sucks. So um, I would, uh, I would, spend a little more money and get a, a great light that's incredible versatile, has a good CRI value. Uh, and um, they now have, Cineo has made the, the kind of frames to be able to use soft boxes with. And I've just gone like full on commando DIY with it. And I'll take a, a Maverick and I just clamp, you know, a, uh, this Westcott has these kind of frames that will fit, uh, some of their lights, but not all of their lights. And, uh, I just grip clip that frame, uh, around the Maverick. And then I just use the softbox that is for the spider light on that. And now you have a very contained source and you're able to, to, uh, to use a, a softer source without the light flying all over the place. So these are like just little things that, that I do uh, because with a documentary package, you can't be hauling around sea stands and flags and all this stuff. It's like you want to have a French flag for sure. And that French flag wants to be very long and articulating. There's like some really good ones out on the market there uh, because then that way you can just clamp it to your camera and get a lens flare or anything that, that might be coming in. Um, with, you know, the approach to covering B-roll and interviews, I mean, I always like a subtle move. And 
you know, Red Rock came up with this really great uh, slider that's just automatic. And it uh, it's like that great profile camera that you can just kind of set it and forget it. And that way you can shoot two cameras. You can get a great profile, kind of three-quarter profile, where you're able to get an eye and a half, let's say, on the profile. And the Red Rock slider will automatically do it to whatever speed you want to dial in. And it just keeps on going back and forth and back and forth. And it keeps it on a rotation that doesn't change focus. So it's not getting closer or further away from the subject. It's doing a mini arc. Well, that's a very cool thing. Uh, then you can set up your A camera, let's say, and that A camera can have a, uh, a, a zoom on it. So you can dive in when your interviewer, interviewee is really getting into, you know, emotion. Uh, you're able to kind of do a nice uh, zoom in on that and uh, keep it you know, working very well and effective. So that's what I kind of try to bring out when I'm doing these little documentary things. I have a little Red Rock slider that is in full on auto mode. I have two people, myself and uh, an assistant. I do all the lighting. Uh, my assistant sets up all the cameras and uh, pulls focus and we go to town. So it's a two man team. And those, the I find that I get the best interviews out of these small little two-man teams anyway because they feel very comfortable it's just me and the camera and there's and my assistant can if you have wireless follow focus doesn't even need to be next to the camera he can be off on a monitor it's however advanced you want to be uh, with all of it but the good mobility is something where like that Westcott golf bag that I described has wheels on it. So you're able to drag it around very quickly. The Westcott is designed in a way where if you don't need all those soft boxes, there is room to put, like I put the Maverick in there and I put actually an HS2 uh, in there as well with their frames. And that all was able to live in that rolling box that rolling case. And then I had a box of bulbs that, you know, I would hand carry uh, so they didn't break and, or I could buy bulbs wherever I landed. So, you know, I, first thing I would do is we would land in a town and I'd go to a hardware store and grab some lights and then go to location. Um, so these are things that you can can plot out and plan, but uh, your lighting kit wants to be something that can, you know, morph into many different things uh, to set you up for success. All right. Next question. Hi, Shane. Thank you for everything you do. Well, you're very welcome. I would feel lost without you. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> what is your opinion on LED lights? I've noticed you don't use them. Ethan Schatz. Well, Ethan, I do use LED lights. I just don't use LED lights that most people see uh, that are trying to be sold to you. Um, I am using uh, the Airy Sky Panel, which is all LED. I'm using the KinoFlow Celeb and Selects that are all LED. Those panel lights are the only LEDs I use as key lights and as bounce lights. For LED strip lighting, I'm using light gear. Uh, I'm using light mat. I'm using these specific uh, LEDs to, to create really soft uh, light, uh, to create interactive strip lighting. Like in Adventures, I used a ton of the bicolor LED, you know, light gear strips. Um, I put them all around like all these high-tech offices and high-tech rooms and, you know, security rooms and, and uh, the vault. Uh, the, the battery room, the, the server room, all these rooms I had LED, uh, bipole, uh, bicolor strips, uh, all on the floors and embedded in walls and in shelves and stuff. So I use a ton of this LED lighting, uh, specifically as practical lights a lot as well. When you go into the Fresnels, 
LEDs just don't stack up. Uh, there's not an LED that's going to equal an 18K uh, yet. There And the tungsten sources like Mole Richardson, what they're building, where they're, they're taking the old housing of their 1K, 2K, 5K, 10K, 20K, and putting in a large LED inside the head. I just find that the light looks false. Um, the CRI values are just not there. It just doesn't look true. It doesn't give you that red, yellow color. Uh, it gives you something more in the pink. And you want red-yellow because red-yellow delivers every skin tone beautifully. Kodak film was based on red-yellow. And uh, so uh, pink is not good for any skin tone. Uh, because even when, like I was dealing with uh, this last feature where I had a lot of Asian talent, you know, Asian uh, has a yellow tint to their skin. Well, red-yellow makes that even more amazing. It gives it so much more depth. The same way with African-American skin, it gives it so much more depth. So um, these Fresnels are not there. And uh, so that's why you don't see me using uh, those a lot. But in the panels and the LED strips and large light gear light mats, uh, I'm using that uh, a ton. All right, next question. Hi, Shane. Whether I'm personally find interest in it or not, virtual reality is here and seems to have gained enough traction to potentially stick around for the foreseeable future. I was curious what your thoughts were when moving forward into the industry. VR poses a very interesting question in terms of lighting, not only for 360 degree space, but also lighting an entire dome of visibility for the viewer. Suddenly, light fixtures are no longer hidden off frame, not to mention the role of the DP. Suddenly, the camera is controlled remotely to avoid being in frame whatsoever. Do you feel like VR is something that we're moving closer to, faster than we may expect uh, a cinematographers? Thanks for your insight in advance. Cheers, Brandon. Well, Brandon, this is a great question. And I have to say that I think VR is here to stay in regards to immersing an audience in uh, an experience, whether you're, you know, on a travel channel and you're able to walk around and look at the streets of Venice and go into the canals and look all around and see, walk into museums and see the artwork and virtually Take the tour of an art gallery that you want to take is, is exciting. Um, I think VR in the world of motion pictures, you are going to be lighting an actress that wants to be beautiful. And I have to light her without having any light visible anywhere. So all I can light her with is some type of practical light. I can tell you that 97% of the actresses in the world, as well as actors, are not going to be into that at all. Julia Roberts is not going to be loving the VR spectrum, as well as directors are not going to be loving the VR. Because when it's all said and done, you are a director. You are directing the audience in the experience how you want them to experience it, how you want them to emote, not them directing the movie, not the audience directing the film, not the audience deciding when they want to emote. So it's, it's two things here, really. And I think there will be a world for it because uh, there, that's going to be great to, to use. Like, I always thought like a horror film would be really cool to do it where you leave the perspective with the viewer on what he sees and what he doesn't see. And, and, uh, and, you know, you use younger talent that you can light with practical lights and things can be harsher and, and, uh, more spooky. Um, I mean, I remember 
when I did Active Valor, I had to light a lot of 360 degree environments because it was a helmet cam. It was a 15 millimeter. They were looking up at the ceiling. They were looking on the ground. They would pan all the way back to their, their comrades behind them. So lighting 360 degree environments is very difficult and making it look moody and exciting and dramatic is a task. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. So I think VR has amazing place for immersing uh, people in an experience. Is it going to find its way into storytelling via uh, feature films? I think uh, the jury is still out on that. Personally, I don't believe in it at all for uh dramatic pieces as as well as you know comedies and and um and action pictures. I, I think the director and his his or her vision is where the audience is being taken. And uh that's what directing is all about. All right. Next question. Hi Shane, thank you for all you're doing on the inner circle. For all of us, it just kicks ass. Oh thank you so much. I was wondering how you were achieving a gray moonlight with a tungsten light. It might be a newbie question because to me, tungsten is orange. So I tried to figure it out. And though maybe you're just changing your white balance settings, but then how do you retain skin tones? Hope you could help me out on this. Thank you again, Jacques. All right, Jacques. Tungsten delivers the best moonlight source on the planet because it is a softer quality of light than an HMI and it has the ability to be gray. So what I do is, let's say a tungsten light is 3200 Kelvin. If you set your camera at 2900 Kelvin, you have then made that light 300 Kelvin cooler, which ends up turning the light gray. It works like a million bucks. Now, how do you deal with skin tones with this? Well, moonlight is gray, so their skin tone should have this gray vibe. Now, if you're mixing like practical sources of you're walking your moonlight and you're walking on a street and you have, you know, tungsten sources or uh, street lamps that are factoring in or whatever the case may be, these lights, you will just need to warm up a little bit more. And you do that by putting, you know, half CTS or quarter CTS, uh, on the, um, on the light. And then it makes them warmer and feel like, you know, those great warm lights, uh, in, uh, in the, the, the shops and stuff. Because if you, don't warm up those lights, they're going to look cold as well because they're tungsten, right? So uh, you're tricking the sensor and you're tricking your audience by taking those tungsten lights and, and, and making them warmer. And by making them warmer, it enables you to have this beautiful mix. And by just changing the white balance on your camera to 2,900 Kelvin, you have systematically turned that tungsten source to a gray, slightly cool tone. It's just so perfect. Uh, that 300 Kelvin shift. And then you've taken your tungsten lights that might be in storefronts and all that stuff. Uh, and you've gelled them with half CTS and now they're down around 2100 Kelvin, which makes it a 800 Kelvin shift, which is going to be nice, rich and warm and red yellow, uh, for any kind of lights that they walk in and around. So that's my style of achieving gray moonlight with tungsten sources. All right. Next question. Thank you for your generous sharing of knowledge and experience. The well seems to never run dry and only multiples as the group you develop the catalyst for contributes to the inner circle and to one another. 
Thank you so much. I, I have to say, I think this community is off the charts and uh, how much they share and care about every individual is really, uh, truly uh, incredible. Um, and all right, let's go down to your question. I would like to glean your insights on how to set up lighting for a dimly lit living room. Specifically, I'm interested in creating a lighting a right lighting setup for individuals watching TV and seeing the light flicker on their faces. It seems that a shot in the room would have to be lit differently than the shot over their shoulders, looking at the big screen in order to avoid blowing out the image on the screen. Please advise or please describe what you would do in this situation and how it might be different than emulating a fire flicker. Rich in Virginia. All right, Rich. So, in the inner circle, if uh, I'm not sure when you've joined, but uh, I did a whole TV gag section where I use dado lights to create uh, a TV gag with a magic gadget flicker box, which has a TV uh, gag effects function. And I also did it with uh, Kino Flow Celebs, where I put it into a small little Best Boy dimmer which is six channel and you can vary the output output as well as the color temperature. Now, the dado works very well for black and white televisions and kind of older TVs that are quote unquote period uh, color televisions. The Kino flows work very much to emulate HD televisions because when HD hits, it has color and color explodes into the room. The best example to, uh, to do is if you have like a 40 inch or a 50 inch or 60 inch or even 30 inch television, turn off all the lights in the room and watch the color that comes on a person's face watching the TV. Watch when ads come on. Watch when like a normal drama or an action picture comes on. I've had to emulate uh, video games. So watch that light. And then you use the celebs uh, or now the, the Kino Select 20 uh, or Select 30 to be able to emulate this. So let's kind of break that down. What I do is I take two of them. And uh, usually, like, I'll take um, a 20, two 20s, and I'll put them in a softbox, usually like a Chimera uh, Pro Plus bank, a medium Pro Plus. And I'll rig them in, the, in there, and I will then put those into the Best Boy Dimmer, and I'm able to take a source that's a little more controllable. Uh, I don't usually egg crate it unless I have to because, you know, that television goes everywhere. So you want that light to be free to do everywhere as well. So when I'm looking at their faces, I tend to not do any kind of egg crate or light control other than a soft box. So it makes it softer because, you know, those screens are, are much softer to the eye because they're big. So you want to try and make the biggest. I try to match whatever TV screen I have. I try to almost double it sometimes. So on the face, it looks even softer. So if I got a 40 inch plasma, I'm trying to do a, a 60 inch softbox. Uh, if I have a, uh, you see what I'm doing. You're doubling the size of the softbox based on the screen. Um, so I put those celebs in there or selects and I dance them around via uh, moving the, the uh, levers up and down, creating color shifts, creating uh, difference in uh, intensity, and it works out very well. And you can see those in the, the uh, TV gags that uh, are in uh, the Shane store to kind of look at this process. When you turn around and you look at the television now, 
It all depends. Most of the time, I never look at a television screen that has anything on it because they never want to be able to, uh, nothing, nothing that's going to be on the television has actually been created. So it's either green or blue. And I tend to go blue because most TVs have a colder tone in general. So I use blue screen to emulate all of my television screens. So I don't have all this weird green light flying around the room. Now, if you actually have the footage on the screen, then obviously the screen is there. You want to stop down or, or bring the screen down. I lower the brightness so it fits and doesn't blow out. And then what I do is I take that soft box that we created with the celebs or the selects or whatever, and I fly it usually on a goalpost or a menace arm just above the frame line. And I still do the subtle nuances of what's on the television. And I articulate that so it gives them, quote unquote, somewhat of a backlight, an edge. As well as it hits inside the room uh, and it plays off the ceiling, might play off a wall. And it's playing in and emulating and creating that television source to actually play and, and dance in the room more effectively than if the TV was actually there and you are, um, you know, you have to turn it down so it doesn't blow out. And when you do that, it really doesn't emulate much light. So based on that, I use this technique to then uh, emulate it once again. So, you know, the close-up, I'm looking at them, even the wide shot of a room. I got my soft box. I got my slebs or selects dancing around in there beautifully. I come around, go over their shoulder. I turn the television down. I fly in a menace arm or this rig as a goalpost over uh, just above the television. And I fire it uh, up and play it more subtle, not as powerful because the backlight, you don't want it to be too extreme. And that dances around and emulates the television. And there you have it. Okay, next question. Hi, Shane. I would love to learn your techniques and specifics for lighting a female face. I remember you talking a while back how a larger monitor helps you with subtle lighting details and lighting faces. Maybe you could speak about that as well. Thank you. Well, Brendan, I have a, a really great, um, I broke the illumination experience up into modules and to, to make it more affordable for everyone. And there's a module called Key Light, uh, The Power of Lighting a Face. And I really go into uh, very deep detail on where to position your light, how to position it, what height, what diffusion, what bounce source, all this specific stuff, how to shape light uh, to, to be able to light a face. So I would have to say... I would get uh, module one in the uh, illumination experience uh, lighting, you know, key light. And that is going to give you the best explanation of how I light faces. Uh, it's, it goes into, I think it's 70 minutes of detail about how to light a face. So I think that would be uh, your, your best bet. And it's a female and she has troubled skin. So, um, but you know, it's, it's about drop shadow. It's about light placement. Sometimes you don't want women to look pretty. Sometimes you want them to look damaged. Sometimes you want them to look very powerful. Uh, sometimes you want vanity and, and kind of high gloss glamour. Uh, I go through all of this on where that light is placed, the height of the light, everything. So I think that's the best way for you to really dig in there and get the best, uh, education. All right. Next question. Hi, Shane. First, I love the inner circle and what you provide. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm a film student in Switzerland and this is my first question. I saw in lighting and interior space videos that you use a Sekonic Lightmaster Pro 478DR. Can you explain how and why 
do you use it? And why do you use this model over one like a Sekonic L758 Cine? Thanks. Reddo. All right, Reddo. A light meter is a light meter. Uh, there is really no reason. I mean, I picked the Pro 478DR because it had a real cool function uh, that you could uh, load neutral densities into the meter. Uh, so you didn't have to calculate the neutral density, but then I found, oh my God, uh, sometimes you forget that that thing's on and you're lighting the wrong, you know, you're lighting with the wrong F uh, ISO because you forgot to remove the neutral density. So, uh, you know, I got that meter based on that and then it kind of boned me twice. So, um, I don't just, I don't put NDs in the thing anymore. Uh, there also was a cool function with it that said you could dial in the exposure based on your digital sensor. That does not work either. Um, I tried desperately to do everything that they said within the manual, using color charts, all this stuff. Uh, none of it worked. So that doesn't work. Uh, I would have to say, you know, th this is a very light, small meter that works very well. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't read low light very well. Uh, I know the 758, I think, reads a little lower, but the Spectre reads the lowest. It reads all the way down to a 0.3. And with these digital sensors, they're seeing seven stops in the under. So if I'm shooting at a 2.8, that's a 2, a 1.4, a 1, a 0.7, a 0.5, a 0.3. So that's six stops. I need to know if, I need to know a meter will read that low. And right now, I think the Spectra is the only one that reads that low, um, which is absolutely essential to digital cinema. And I was disappointed with the Sekonic because it only read to a 0.7. Well, that's bullshit. Uh, so I would, uh, I would say, you know, the, the Spectra is your best bet across the board. You don't need all these fancy things like trying to dial it into your digital sensor or putting neutral density in some kind of a, a thing. So it reads that you don't need that stuff. Uh, you just calculate in your head. Um, so that's, that's where, and now why do I use them? Well, I use light meters to figure out photometrics of what light specifically I'm going to need to light areas. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm going to have enough light. So I use the photometrics and foot candles within the Spectra light meter to be able to calculate that. I also use it to match. So uh, one thing I do is I create this book of light. So the book of light is done for every scene on every uh, film that I do. So once we're all lit and everything is absolutely dialed in and we're ready to roll, I go out there and I take color meter and light meter uh, values. So if I have to go back and they say, you know, we, we, specifically happens on TV series all the time. It's like, hey, we need to go back and replicate that uh, shot. Let me, we're going to build the set again and we need these two inserts or we need a close up of this person. Well, if you don't have those light values and, and the ratio, right? Ratio is everything uh, between your key and your fill. Um, if, if you don't have those meter readings, then it's going to be very difficult for you to get it in the pocket and match uh, those um, pickups. And uh, like I said, I've had this happen to me more times than not, where I we were going too fast and I didn't have time to do my book of light entry. And sure enough, that is the sequence that they pull up and say, we need more coverage on. And I'm uh, doing my best to match it via Flanders, via uh, IRE values, all that stuff to try and get it in the pocket, where if I would just had the light meter uh, and had these values, I would have been able to match it incredibly quickly. So that's why I use it. 
All right, final question. Hi, Shane. The virtual mentorship you're providing is invaluable, as is the community it has created. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that means so much to me. And I, I love this community and I love all these questions and being able to share uh, my 30 years of experience with all of you. I am starting a stylized vampire feature in June that is focused on four sets on a stage. The director wants to shoot in two directions for performance reasons. It is dark and moody atmosphere set in a Victorian set dressing style with human trafficking as its substory. Ooh, sounds very cool. What lighting tips can you give me for creating a darker mood while still allowing the actor's freedom of movement and the ability to look both directions at once in coverage? Thank you, Gallo. Well, Gallo, this is a great question. Um, top light is your absolute friend when you're doing both directions in coverage. If you want to create mood but you still want to illuminate faces. Uh, top lighting works incredibly well. Um, if you look, uh, House of Cards is a perfect example of great mood and it's mainly toplet. So that, that's just the, the DP's, you know, way he handles everything. Everything comes from above. And that style is, is very cool. And, you know, if you control the top light, then you're able to keep the walls around it dark and then the people underneath it lit. So you're able to keep beautiful contrast with that. On adventures, uh, the Asian frame of their face is very good for top light. Uh, it works incredibly well. Their eyes, the way their face is formed, it's much flatter and it's not, uh, they don't have deep set eyes. So the top light uh, fills into their eyes much better and uh, it really accents their cheekbones and pulls out a great character to their face and, and depth and dimension. So I would say your, your uh, first choice with this is going to be top lighting these scenarios. And then if you need, you know, lights, then there's obviously it's a Victorian era. So electricity was like 1880. And that was kind of where the Victorian age was. So you could possibly interject some practicals and electricity. Uh, if not, then you're dealing with big soft sources that come into rooms via windows and stuff. Uh, that, um, you know, I like to, to control those. I, you, I love the Victorian age. They were all about these big ass curtains and stuff. So I tend to take those curtains and suck them way down and make the light, you know, very powerful at the window. And then it falls off in the room and makes it feel very dark. Uh, so it can be very spooky, even though it's in the daytime. But yeah, that's, that would might be uh, my suggestion to you and enables you to turn around, rotate 360 degrees uh, by using the top light. And, uh, and if you control it, like by using Chimera pancakes or, you know, Cineo uh, in soft boxes for overhead, something that, that has skirts on the side of it. Uh, that can keep it off the walls. This is going to be, uh, you to keep that, create that nice mood where the walls go dark. And, you know, imagine a hallway, right? And you top light the hallway and say at the end of the hallway, there is maybe a door and that door, uh, has some glass in it or whatever. And, and you take a light and you, you put it through that door and you make it a slightly cyan greenish tone that then sheens the wall. So you have this, this greenish cyan sheen down the wall mixed with this top light coming in. Well, I think you have something that's going to look really cool there and, uh, and be very spooky and, and into the vampire feature mode. 
All right. Well, that concludes our May 2017 podcast. I thank you again for all the amazing questions. Again, this was lighting focused. Do not forget to go to the podcast button, the, the, uh, the image within the store, uh, not the store, the inner circle and, uh, put your podcast questions in so we can keep to fuel this bank of amazing questions. And I can continue to share and reach out and touch all of you, uh, and help you out, uh, really, um, strive to do better cinematography and to uh, increase your day rate and uh, all the wonderful things that come with uh, the sharing of knowledge. So have a wonderful day. Take care. Bye-bye. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.